Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 235th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this very special episode is presented by the prime original series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, now nominated for 14 Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Comedy Series and Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for Rachel Brosnahan's performance as Midge Maisel. Consider it marvelous in all categories. My guest today has been called the most recognizable scientist in the world, and one professor has said of her, quote, What Albert Einstein is to physics, she is to the behavioral sciences, close quote. For 58 years now, she has been traveling to Gombe, a jungle in the western Kagoma region of Tanzania, to study chimpanzees. Her research there has resulted in numerous landmark discoveries, most notably that chimps, like humans, construct and use tools, and also are not, as have been widely believed, vegetarians. As Louis Leakey, the world-renowned paleoanthropologist and archaeologist who first sent her out into the wild, telegrammed in response to these revelations, quote, Now we must redefine man, redefine tools, or accept chimpanzees as humans, close quote. In recent years, as she has devoted more of her time to traveling the world to educate people and inspire them to protect chimpanzees and save the planet, her fame has only grown. She was made a commander of the Order of the British Empire in 1995 and a dame commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2003. She was awarded the French Legion of Honor in 2006. And today, at 84, she is the subject of a massively acclaimed documentary, Oscar nominee Brett Morgan's Jane, which had its world premiere broadcast on National Geographic and Nat Geo Wild on March 12th and is now nominated for seven Emmys, including exceptional merit in documentary filmmaking the legendary Dr. Jane Goodall. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by my colleagues Rebecca Ford, our awards editor, and Rebecca Sun, a senior reporter, to discuss the cover story that they wrote for our August 1st issue entitled The Risks and Rewards of Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians is a $30 million film adapted from Kevin Kwan's 2013 best-selling novel by the producers of The Hunger Games films, directed by John Chu and starring Constance Wu, Henry Golding, Michelle Yeoh, Ronnie Cheng, Gemma Chan, Ken Jeong, Jimmy O. Yang, and Aquafina, among others, which Warner Brothers will release nationwide on Wednesday. The rom-com heads into its opening with a 97% favorable rating from film critics and a lot of buzz, not least because it will be Hollywood's first contemporary set nationwide release with a principal cast comprised entirely of Asians since the Joy Luck Club was released 25 years ago, which itself came 
32 years after the only prior example, Flower Drum Song. Rebecca and Rebecca, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Scott. So I cannot speak to whether you are crazy rich or crazy rich, but you are both of Asian descent. And so I want to ask you just first on a personal level what it means to you that this film exists and what it was like working on this piece. Rebecca Ford, shall we start with you? Yeah, I remember breaking the casting of Constance Wu on this project. And now that was a few years ago at this point. But I remember even then thinking, this is going to be a big deal. I didn't really realize how great the movie would end up being. But I had a feeling that seeing them put together an all-Asian cast for a studio movie was going to be a big deal even back then. You know, I mean, I think we can both sort of pick out these memories we have of seeing Asian people in movies and television very, very rarely growing up. So to be able to see, you know, faces that look similar to yours or familiar to you or even cultural moments that feel familiar to you on the big screen it feels so special that I always felt that this movie was going to be something special and it also happens to be great. So the best of both worlds. <laughs> Rebecca Son, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been a journalist for well over a decade and, you know, Rebecca Ford and I have both been in this business covering this industry for a really long time. We've written a lot of different kinds of stories, covered a lot of different movies, you know, different projects. And this was the first time we've written a story of this scale. You know, this is a cover story for The Hollywood Reporter that actually featured actors and creatives who shared our cultural background. And that's sort of the experience of Asian Americans and other underrepresented people in the country is we've grown up identifying with everything that American culture has given us. You know, we have favorite television shows and favorite movies and favorite characters and seldom, if ever, are they ever Asian. And we've gotten used to that. And so I think the experience of working on this story, every interview we conducted, you know, with John Chu, with with the cast members, was quite a unique and revelatory experience, I would say, on both sides, because for once we were speaking sort of uh, on two levels, both, you know, exchanging the professional content of, of how this film was made, but also just having personal conversations with members in your own community was really quite special. It seems like this moment has also brought together Asian entertainment journalists here in Hollywood. I've noticed on your guys' social media that there have been some gatherings. And is this coincidental or is it also tied to this movie? I think it started before this movie. I think there's been a lot of discussion sort of about the whitewashing issues with other stories that have been made in the last couple of years in Hollywood. And I think that I would say that's when discussion sort of started with Asian journalists in, in Hollywood about the stories that are being told and the way they're being reported on and discussed, especially on things like Twitter. So I think, you know, we're seeing that happen with journalists, but also executives in Hollywood seem to be talking a lot more about how to sort of have more inclusive stories told. So overall, it just feels like in the last couple of years, there's been a banding together between different groups to make sure there's a variety of stories being told. So let's talk now about the climate into which Crazy Rich Asians is being released. As you referenced a little earlier, there have been several controversies over the last few years that involved the role of Asians and the depiction of Asians in Hollywood. It seems like maybe one of the turning points was at the 88th Oscars ceremony in 2016, when on the night that everyone was talking about the Oscar So White issue, the host, Chris Rock, made a joke about PwC, the accountants, 
not knowing that the real joke was a year away. But this one featured Asian children posing as these accountants and essentially being mocked. And then he said, if you take offense to this bit, tweet about it on your phone, which they also probably made. This did not go over well with a lot of people, but it did sort of galvanize the Asian community in Hollywood, didn't it? Yeah, I've been speaking to various Asian producers and executives who who really point to that moment as, in retrospect, what really brought them together finally for the first time. You know, after the Oscar jokes that year, Janet Yang, a member of the Academy, George Takei, Ang Lee, um, about 20 or so members of the Academy, got together and wrote a, a group letter to Don Hudson, the Academy leadership. And, and you know, they said that prior to that, the Asian members of the Academy, who were sort of scattered and disparate, had never really met and had never really formed an intentional and conscious community. And since then, they host mixers at least once or twice a year. You know, just to celebrate the new Asian Academy members, to celebrate the accomplishments that, you know, that the group has has had. And it's really formed a sense of community. And it kind of came out of that collective sense of outrage and looking around and saying, like, hey, you, aren't you mad about this, too? You know, to tie it back, Janet Yang, who produced the Joy Luck Club, you know, she has been one of the informal consultants that Warner Brothers has been speaking with in order to sort of mobilize community support for the movie. Crazy Rich Asians, in many ways, is the spiritual descendant of of her movie a quarter century ago. And also, just to note, one of the first people to react to the Chris Rock situation there with the Asian children was Constance Wu, who tweeted, quote, To parade little kids on stage with no speaking lines merely to be the butt of a racist joke is reductive and gross, close quote. Only two people of Asian descent have won acting Oscars, Miyoshi Umeki for 1957's Sayonara and Haing S. Noor for 1984's The Killing Fields, both in supporting acting categories. Over the years, what sorts of work have Asians been able to get on screen in Hollywood productions? I think we've seen improvements in the last couple of years. I'll start there. But, you know, before that, I would say... It's sort of the token, you know, lab technician sort of situation where they have a line or two. And and those sorts of roles are not going to make movie stars. And I think that's been the frustration a lot of the time is executives will say, we can't find a Asian lead. You know, no one's famous enough for that. Well, they're not going to be famous enough if they're only the... 18th person on the call sheet with one line. So I think, you know, historically, that's what has been seen. But over the last couple of years, there's been some more exciting castings. You look at Kelly Marie Tran and Star Wars and things like that that are, you know, have been really meaty roles and franchise roles, which is a big deal. So it's it's a slow improvement. But, you know, Crazy Rich Asians really is the first big studio movie featuring an all-Asian cast. And Rebecca's son, it seems like one of the things that spurred a little bit of awareness about this issue was a hashtag called Starring John Cho. Starring John Cho was developed by a, a guy named William Yu, and he basically, it's a very simple concept, he photoshopped John Cho's face onto a bunch of real movie posters like Captain America and Jurassic World and, and James Bond and that sort of thing. And, and the idea was to say, why can't this be a normal site? You know, why 
can't an Asian person not only be the lead, but be seen in a variety of archetypes, you know, be the the action hero, be the suave secret agent, be the romantic lead. And and that's really what I think Rebecca Ford is, is also speaking about with Crazy Rich Asians and the variety of roles that we're finally starting to see. I think traditionally, Asian Americans, like many other marginalized people, have been in roles of support. We've sort of risen to the level that you can be the best friend, but you can't be the guy who's actually on the journey. Or you have to be a role in which it's very, very specifically tied to sort of a cultural heritage. So, you know, you have to be like the refugee. I mean, Hang Noor, one in The Killing Fields, he's playing a Cambodian photographer and, and that sort of thing. And so I think what you're seeing now is you can be almost agnostic in terms of your cultural background. You happen to be Asian. Ironically, John Cho is starring in a (laughs) film at the end of this month, Searching, in which he plays a dad. He plays a dad who's looking for his missing teenager. And what's great is, yes, the character is Korean-American. I think the character's name is David Kim. But it's not about, like, the struggle of being an immigrant. It's not about anything specifically having to do with race. Race is a part of the character's identity, but it's not the point of the story. And I think that's the new frontier. So why did it take 25 years since The Joy Luck Club, which actually did pretty well commercially, to get another movie greenlighted of that sort of makeup. I mean, it seems like in this town, and you guys cover this stuff as much as anyone, if something makes people money, they generally will do it. I mean, I think most of these executives would sell their parents if it would be profitable. So why did it take this long? That's a big question, Scott, on why (laughs) it hasn't happened in 25 years. I think Hollywood you know, has a reputation for not wanting to take a lot of risk. You know, a studio is spending a lot of money to release a movie, and it is a big financial risk and can be really detrimental if it doesn't work for them. And, you know, I feel like often Hollywood plays it safe, and they have always viewed telling these sort of more diverse stories as a risk, you know, like will the young white male teenager go see a movie that's not a superhero movie or whatever it is. So I think that's part of the reason it hasn't been something that's been done in the last 25 years, along with, you know, more diverse storytellers not always getting the opportunities. They have been in the last few years, but I think that's more of a trend that we're just seeing now. So, you know, I think having those storytellers to tell those stories is part of the battle. One thing that we can mention, I don't know how this would necessarily affect things, but the latest numbers are that Asians comprise 6% of the American population, but, you know, people go to movies about other people who don't look like them. So for the other 94%, I, I'm not sure how that affects things. But how did this Rebecca Sun, you know, wind up at Warner Brothers? It's kind of an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, so Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson, the producers at Color Force, decided to package the entire film before taking it out to studios because they wanted to make sure that, for one thing, that they could retain an all-Asian cast, that nobody would try to switch out Rachel Chu for, you know, Rachel Smith at the last minute, and also because they wanted to make sure it would get made. They didn't want the movie to get stuck in development with no director attachment and things like that. And so there were other studios that bid, On Crazy Rich Asians, Warner Brothers had the best of the studio offers. But a few days after Warner's bid, Netflix came in saying, we love this project. We know there's a trilogy of books, and we would love to make a trilogy of movies. And also, we would like to incentivize all the stakeholders and give 
you know, you, John Chu, you, Kevin Kwan, you, Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson, each a check for multi-million dollars. We're talking like high seven, I think is what my good authority (laughs) tells me. But that's Netflix, you know. And as you can see with the rollout of, you know, no shade to this really cool looking project to all the boys I've loved before or any Netflix movie that you've seen, you're not getting like a huge red carpet premiere at the Chinese theater, um, you know, billboards, this massive marketing campaign, the cover of The Hollywood Reporter and, and other outlets. You are not in the middle of the zeitgeist. You in know, the way you're saying that a theatrical, nationwide a theatrical, theatrical release. Exactly. Without a, a theatrical experience, it's seen differently. And and indeed, I think that, you know, Rebecca Ford and I talking amongst ourselves and with our peers and, and what the filmmakers have also found is they've been told it's true. I think if it had gone to Netflix, which is a wonderful company that really did treat them very well, they really believed in the project, it would have felt not like a real successor to Joy Luck Club. It would have been like an asterisk, you know. Because we never even would know how well it did because Netflix doesn't release those numbers. That's a big part of it. You know, without the comps, you know, for better or for worse, yes, if it does badly, then it could reinforce a lot of conventional wisdom about why there hasn't been an Asian movie in 25 years. But on the other hand, this is the only way you can prove that people will buy a ticket to see faces like this on screen. Well, so that that leads nicely into the final thing I want to ask you about, which is, you know, the fact that there is a lot riding on this release starting on Wednesday. And so I want to ask you just, you know, I was in a meeting this morning with an Asian man who mentioned that he told me that he's heard the mothers of Asian friends of his who won't even go to tell their friends to see his movies are telling their friends and everyone they know to go see this movie. We've heard and you guys reported on examples of people who are actually crazy rich Asians who are buying out theaters to support the movie. What is riding on the opening weekend? And this is the tough question. I've got to ask you to to be, you know, fully candid here. Is the movie actually good? Yes, the movie is very good. I think it reminds me of those wonderful romantic comedies that we used to all see in theaters and love so much and I would say haven't seen in in maybe a decade or so. You know, just these beautiful scenes and it's it's just a really wonderfully done romantic comedy that's a lot of fun even if you put aside the cultural significance of this film. And so in my optimistic view, I think when this film does work, it proves that all audiences, not just the Asian American community, are looking for stories that feel fresh and new and things they haven't seen before, but at the same time have sort of these universal truths like this one talks a lot about being an outsider or, you know, wanting to get the love of your in-laws and things that I would say everyone relates to. And I think when this does work, I think it proves that there is room for a lot of this sort of storytelling in Hollywood. Yeah, I think what's writing on Crazy Rich Asians is the speed and smoothness of the development of the next Asian-American-focused Hollywood project. You know, I think a lot of studios are sitting on things that they have in development and waiting to see how well Crazy Rich Asians does before they decide to commit resources or how much resources 
to commit to, to their own projects. And I think that's a big difference from, you know, we were speaking earlier about why there was nothing after Joy Luck Club. You know, in, in part, it's because it did take a little bit of time for this community, the Asian American community of artists, to form and develop. Not saying that there were not Asian American actors and filmmakers and writers back then, but there's a little bit more of a critical mass now, and they've sort of worked their way up individually to be in places where they have stuff ready. There's stuff, you know, in the pipeline ready to go. Whereas with Joy Luck Club, it really felt like sort of just this singular thing without a lot of peers in the in the canon. In terms of whether or not the, the movie is good, I would say that, you know, you shouldn't just take our me and Rebecca Ford's word for it. It's got, what is it, like a 97% yeah. of Rotten Tomatoes right now, which is still pretty good enough for an Asian A+. You know, um, <laughs> but, you know, it really is genuinely, you know, this is a time where, we, you know, we're talking about do Hollywood studios still make good rom-coms? It's been pretty universally praised as a romantic comedy set in a world and in a culture that feels really, really fresh, but also very escapist. It manages to sort of show off the opulence of this world without kind of turning you off to it. It's actually a movie that it's it's flashy and fun, but it has a real emotional authenticity to it and a heart. So I think for anybody who's afraid that, they, I mean, they don't want to like really enable or reinforce the sort of crass consumerism that, that we've turned to, I genuinely don't think it's about that. I think it's about being torn between your loyalty to your heart and to your family. And that's a fairly universal value. Rebecca Ford and Rebecca Sun, congrats on the article, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Scott. And now for my interview with Dr. Jane Goodall, which was recorded at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. Dr. Goodall, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in London. And my father was a, well, he was an engineer, but he raced motor cars in the days when you raced your own motor car. It was long before professional, <laughs> you know, the cars they raced today on any kind of real car at all. Right. And my mother was just, well, I suppose you'd call her a housewife. Yes. And you really grew up with the backdrop of World War II. I wonder, how did that affect your childhood? I think it affected me a lot. So my mother, me, and my sister were in France when the war broke out because my father wanted me and my sister to grow up speaking French. I'm not quite sure why, but he did. (laughs) And so we left just before, you know, the, the war really broke out and went to live with my mother's mother in Bournemouth. And I don't remember much about the early days of the war except... When the air raid was sounded, we all had to leave our beds and climb into this air raid shelter. But then when I was older, towards the end of the war, when the pictures of the Holocaust mm-hmm. came out in the newspapers, I, I was I was so utterly shocked. I mean, it completely changed, I think, who I would become. What to realise you... man's inhumanity to man was absolutely shocking. And, you know, if, if that's how man can treat fellow man, man can 
be pretty bad as well towards animals. What do you think made you aware of animals for the first time in, in a way beyond the, the usual kid having a pet or a teddy bear or whatever? How did you become an animal lover for the first time? Well, according to my mother, it began before I could speak. I was always watching any kind of animal I could. Yes, we had a dog, but I was watching earthworms and spiders. <laughs> I think my seminal moment came when I was four years old, went to the country to my grandmother's farm, and my job was to collect hen's eggs. <laughs> and so, you know, I was going around collecting the eggs. There were no factory farms in those days. And I apparently began asking everybody, but where does the egg come out of the hen? Because I couldn't see a big enough hole. Right. Nobody told me. Right. So what I remember vividly of seeing this hen, and she was brown, I right. remember her vividly. She was going up into one of these little hen houses where they slept at night. And I must have thought, ah, oh, she's going to lay an egg. Crawled after her. Big mistake. Squawks of fear. She flew out. <laughs> And so, again, in my little four-year-old mind, I must have thought, no hen will lay an egg here now <laughs> because it's a dangerous place. Right. But now I'm on the path of discovery. Right. So I went and hid in an empty hen house, and apparently I was gone for over four hours. Oh, you had everybody worried. And so there's my mother. It's getting dark. <laughs> She's called the police. <laughs> she sees this excited little girl rushing towards the house. And instead of getting mad at me, how dare you go off without telling us, don't you ever dare do it again, which would have killed all my excitement. Right. She sat down to hear the wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. And for me, that is the, the making of a little scientist. Mm -hmm. Curiosity, asking questions, not getting the right answer deciding to find out for yourself, making a mistake, not giving up, and learning patience. It was all there, and a different kind of mother might have crushed mm -hmm. that scientific curiosity, and I might not have done what I've done. Amazing. Well, and then as far as primates specifically, I read that your father after the war was maybe intermittently present, but that one of his lasting gifts was literally a gift of something that was it a chimp or was it a some form of a stuffed animal, right? It was a chimp, and the this story has gone round and round. You know how <laughs> things go. Like, it gets out there on the internet, and you can't reclaim it. Right. Well, let's set uh, the record so, straight. So let's separate it right now. Right. He did indeed give me a stuffed chimpanzee. Right. It was the first chimpanzee baby born in London Zoo. It was to commemorate the jubilee year of the then king and queen mm -hmm. and these stuffed chimpanzees were made by the big toy shop mm -hmm. the famous one in england hamley's right. and all of them were called jubilee gotcha. so my father gave me jubilee and all my <laughs> parents friends said you can't give a small child i was one and a half years old right. she'll have nightmares and jubilee became i mean i took him everywhere and I still have him, by the way. Do you? That's great. I still have him. He doesn't have much hair left, <laughs> partly because of love, you know, taking right, him, right. but partly moth, I think. <laughs> so everybody has this assumption that because of Jubilee, I was fixated on chimps, and that's what's not true. Oh, okay. Because back then, thinking about chimpanzees was so exotic. 
yes, I wanted to go and live in Africa and live with wild animals and write books about them because of Dr. Doolittle and Tarzan. <laughs> Nothing to do with Jubilee. Right. So you had read the Dr. Doolittle Dr. book. Dr. Doolittle, yeah, where Dr. Doolittle is taught to speak animal language right. by his parrot, Polynesia. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness, how I wanted a parrot to teach me animal language. <laughs> so, you know, when I finally got invited to Africa to stay with a school friend... Right. I had no no dream of studying chimpanzees. They were exotic. They were way beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. It was just chance yes. that Lewis Leakey wanted somebody to go and study chimpanzees, and just he found me. One one last thing before we get more into Lewis Leakey. Tarzan? Is this legend or truth that you were quite enamored with Tarzan as a oh. kid? When I was 10 years old, the war was still raging. And I don't think children's books were even printed back then. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any money, but I used to spend hours in a secondhand bookshop. And on this occasion, you know, I used to save up my few pennies of pocket money. And I just had enough for this little book, Tarzan of the Apes. This is pre-television, pre-Johnny Weissmuller. And I took the book home and, of course, fell passionately in love with this glorious lord of the jungle <laughs> and was incredibly jealous when he married the wrong Jane. Right. That's did, true. Did you ever go to the movies as well where it was? Yes, my mother, as I say, we had very little money. Right. She saved up when the first Johnny Weissmuller movie came over to the UK, England as it was then. Mm-hmm. And after about five minutes... I burst into noisy tears. She had to take me out. She said, Jane, what's the matter? I said, that wasn't Tarzan. And this is important for one reason which people don't think about. Mm. Back then, there was no TV. Right. And you read a book, and it was your imagination. So I imagined the Tarzan I was in love with, and it wasn't Johnny Weissmuller. Right. And you wanted him to pick another, a different Jane. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, today... Kids don't have that opportunity to imagine because right. everything's on TV. Right, or the Internet. And, in fact, they mostly don't even bother to read books. They see it all on TV. Right. So we're stunting the imagination of future generations, right. which is tragic. Most of your social and economic peers, I would assume, were not going off to Africa at the age of 22, 23, as you did in 1957. Can you share... What was going on in your life at the time you got an invitation to go there? And then also what brought about that invitation? Well, all my schoolmates, you know, in those days, women didn't really have careers. Mm -hmm. You messed about. You could be an air hostess or you could do a secretarial, which is what I did because we couldn't afford university. Mm -hmm. But you expected to get married. That was it. So... A husband would come along and you'd raise a family. That was that was how it was back then. Now we're talking about the early 50s. Mm-hmm. And so when I was invited to Africa by a school friend whose parents had moved to Kenya, I went there and that's when I heard about the late Louis Leakey and went to see him at the museum. And he took me all around the Natural History Museum in Nairobi. But you just cold-called him, right? I just cold-called him. And said what? 
I said, can I come out and see you to talk about animals? And did he say, who are you? No, he didn't. He he just said, all right, he hated the telephone, so he's very <laughs> brusque. Right. He said, yes, if I'm here, I'll see you. Basically, that was, that was it. And he was quite famous, right? I mean, as... Oh, yeah, as a paleontologist. Paleontologist. Absolutely. But I didn't know that. I was, you know, I was just told, if you care about animals, you should meet Lewis Leakey, so... I bring up Louis Leakey and say, I want to meet you and talk about animals. And when you met him, what happened? So when I met him, what happened is he took me all around the museum and he asked me lots of questions. And because I had read and read and read about African animals, because I spent hours in the Natural History Museum in London, I could answer many of his questions. So when I left school, as I've said, we didn't have enough money for university, mm-hmm. but I we had enough money for a secretarial training because I had to get some money, right? right? Right. And it was boring and tedious, and I didn't enjoy it at all. Mm-hmm. But when I met Lewis and he'd taken me around and asked me all these questions, he then imparted the information to me that his secretary had suddenly left the week before and he needed secretaries. Here's me, done this boring secretarial, done secretarial jobs, pretty good secretary, and that got me in. I mean, doesn't it show how strange life is (laughs) that things are meant to be? I totally believe things are meant to be. That's interesting. And I believe it's the case that he also, you know, in some ways people, I don't know if people necessarily recognize the connective thread here, but he also helped to spark the careers of Dion Fassi, right? With oh, yeah. uh, the gorillas in Rwanda and Barut Galdikas. Galdikas. With yeah, the orangutans in Borneo. I was number one. You were the first. Yes, the first. I but, was the first. But I wonder, you know, I've I've gone back and read a lot of other interviews that you've given and things that you've written, some of the books and articles. And the way it sounds, I know at the, the times were different, but it sounds like he was also, to some degree, a little forward. You were a 23-year-old girl, and he was a fairly aggressive pursuer of you, wasn't he, even though he was a married man? I wouldn't call him aggressive. Mm-hmm. He was, can I say, captivated? Sure. And... There was a time when, you know, because he was talking about me studying the chimpanzees, and it was nothing explicit, but a feeling that, well, I know that Leakey really would like to. Oh, let's be explicit. Take me to bed. Yeah. Um, And I don't want to do that. And and it, it bothered me that, well, perhaps if I say no... I'll be denied this opportunity to do what I've always wanted to do. But I must say, absolutely, Leakey never, ever, he never pushed this, never. So you just kind of knew it was there, but it was never... It kind of indicated, but it was never, he was never, never, ever aggressive about it, never. Okay, I'm glad to to hear that. Well, it's important to make that. Yeah. Apparently, I'm told... Mm -hmm that because I wasn't interested in the sexual side of it, that he approached somebody else. Fortunately for me, that person had nothing to do with sex. He approached her because he thought she might also go and study chimps. But fortunately, she said no. 
And she so she didn't want the uh, isolation. This was after you'd now been working as his secretary yes. for a little while. Yes. So, but I guess the big thing we should emphasize is this meant that you had decided you're not going back to England, right? So you stayed. How did you? Well, I stayed, but I had to go back while he tried to get money for me to study the chimps. He eventually got money from a wealthy American businessman who had a tool factory Mm -hmm. and was interested in Louis Leakey's work with fossil humans with their early tool using, Mm -hmm. Stone Age. Mm -hmm. And because of that, he decided six months' money for Jane to go and we'll see how she does. Chronologically, so you go there to visit your friend, you meet Leakey, you work for him work for him as a secretary for several months it was about six, over 6 months 6 months i saved up enough for mum to come out so she comes to visit you yeah he now says it might be interesting for you to go and get credentialed essentially so that you can do more academic sort of work for us or that only came later that where was later that was so after 6 months what happened was after 6 months I went back to England, and it took a year for him to get this money from this American businessman. And that so was for, for you to go for to a Africa. year, I was in England, yeah. learning about chimps, going to the zoo, getting a job at the zoo, learning everything I could, and waiting, 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 waiting. And finally, you know, he got this money, and I could start the research. Because the money was specifically to send you to yeah. what is now Tanzania. For six months. Yeah. How did it end up that your mother and I believe a cook would accompany you? Well, you know, when I first went out, I was 23. That's when I met Leakey. Mm-hmm. And I went back and waited. I was 26 when the funding came through for six months. The British authorities in what was then Tanganyika, yes. the last outpost of the crumbling British Empire, yeah, yeah. it was a British protectorate. And the authority said, sorry, young girl on her own, we won't take responsibility. So I had to have somebody with me, and mum volunteered. But wouldn't it have been a little bit crazy for you not to, even with your mom, it seems a little crazy, like to drop a young woman in the middle of Africa in a place where you'd never been before and... You were going to just be sort of figure it out on your own? I mean, that is still essentially what happened, even with your mother there. Yeah, there were the two of us, yeah. But I mean, now as you're, you know, probably at or even past the age that Leaky was at the time, can you imagine sending a 26-year-old person who had never really done field research into the middle of Africa to do this? Isn't it strange? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is. It's a little nuts. It, but uh, it's a little nuts. But, you know, I think the, the day that he decided he would send me, he took me, one of the young English girl, every summer, he and his wife used to go to Olduvai Gorge on the Serengeti Plains to search for the remains of Stone Age humans, Mm -hmm. who they passionately believed were there. And all the other people said, no, no, these tools that you say are of human tools, they're not. They were right, of course. But he took me and this one other young girl, Gillian, Mm -hmm. and in the evening after we'd been digging for fossils, we were allowed out on the plains. And... One evening, we 
came upon a rhino. And okay, the rhino was uh, 20 foot away. <laughs> Luckily, the wind was blowing from him to us, and they don't see very well. So he went back and forth, back and forth with his tail up, and then he right. trotted in the other direction. Oh my gosh. Then a bit later, one evening, it was a young male lion, just about two years old, mane beginning to grow, and he'd never seen anything like me and Julian before. And he followed us. It seemed a very long way. Julian and I, we climbed up the gorge and the lion left us. That was the evening Leakey decided I was the person he wanted to send to study the chimps. He said I did everything right. How do you explain your own fearlessness in, in a situation like that? I think I always have felt that I belong to be out with wildlife, that if I didn't hurt them, that they wouldn't hurt me. And I think it was partly Tarzan, partly Dr. Doolittle, <laughs> truly. But does any part of you now with, again, the benefit of hindsight, you know, of doing this for decades and seeing what can happen to people? I mean, I think it's fair to say nobody loved animals more than Steve Irwin. And there's somebody that was killed by an animal. It can happen. It doesn't well, mean yeah, that... But he did take crazy risks yeah no, he really did he was a bit crazy yeah no, don't pick steve but pick exactly. other people right but i know what you mean yeah yes it was a bit crazy looking back on it it was a bit crazy but it was meant to be and it was perfect for me it was right. perfect and was that your immediate impression when you first got to gombe in july 1960 again you're 26 you're with your mom with this cook you immediately were in in love with the place no, and immediately I looked up at the hills uh, and thought, how on earth am I going to find the chimps here? Little tiny me and these valleys and these thickly forested valleys and the rift escarpment up there. How on earth will I find the chimpanzees? And then, of course, for the first months, they ran away every time they saw me. So you got there in July and it wasn't until October that you saw your first chimp that was David Greybeard, right? Well, no, I saw them, but they ran away. Or that they interacted so with, yeah. So David Greybeard was the first one who didn't run away. And this, of course, just to bring it back to the wonderful documentary, this is the part of your story that we begin to see pick yeah, up in, yeah. in the documentary. Was it that same month, I, I think, starting in October maybe, that you first began to reach the conclusions that really changed the game as far as the fact that chimpanzees construct and use tools, yeah. that they were not in fact vegetarians as had widely been believed. That was, how soon were you reporting those kinds of findings back that to Lee? That was, okay, so I began in July. Yes. And those two began in October. And mom had just left because she already came for four months. So it was meat eating and tool using and tool making. And it was both times David Greybeard first chimp to lose his fear, who demonstrated tool using, tool making, and hunting, well, meat eating. Can you just remind, I know this is addressed in the doc, but what was the tool in question here? Well, this was, you know, I was walking along this trail and it had been raining and mum had just left and she'd been so supportive and boosted my morale in those awful early days when the chimps ran away. So there I see this dark shape hunched over a termite mound. 
and I see a black hand reach out and break off a grass stem and I see it pushed down into the tunnel in the termite mound, carefully pulled out, and that termite's clinging on, bitten off and chewed up, and then seeing a leafy twig picked, and before that can be used as a tool, the leaves have to be removed and the side branches, using and making tools. So if we see that today, it doesn't mean a thing, there's lots of animals, but back then, science thought, Humans and only humans use and make tools. So you immediately realized this was a very big deal? Yes. And, you know, the thing is, I'd read a lot about captive chimps, so I wasn't actually surprised. But I knew that science believed that only humans used and made tools. I knew that science believed that any chimp in captivity, somehow human intelligence had rubbed off on them. Mm. So I knew that what I was seeing was kind of going to make a big impact, and it did. How did you communicate this news to Leakey, and then how did he communicate his reaction back to you? Okay, well, it had to be by telegram because there was no internet or anything like that. But how do you even get off a telegram from the middle of... Well, it took a while because we had to send somebody by boat from Gombe into the nearest town to send the telegram. So, And also I waited till I'd seen it a couple more times because, right. you know, I wanted to be sure yeah. that what I'd seen was real. Yeah. You know, sometimes you hallucinate. <laughs> so anyway, then I sent it off to him and he sent back his famous reply, well, because we're now defined as man, the toolmaker, we have to redefine man, redefine chimp or redefine tool or accept chimps as human. How exciting was it to you to know that your work was making a difference. Well, the exciting part was that it meant the National Geographic came in and said, OK, we will continue to fund this research when the first six months money runs out. And they, up to that point, had not been filming you on site, right? It was only they, as... They weren't... Uh, Geographic wasn't involved at all. OK. It was not the, at all. It was, it was the, just the yeah. first six months money from this wealthy American businessman. And so that was what led to them first starting to document right. you. So that led to them, A, saying we'll support the work, B, sending a filmmaker and photographer, Hugo van Lauwick. Who, of course, later became your Which first husband. Which is how we got this film. Yes. And a beautiful, yeah. unbelievable quality film, which we'll talk about how that was rediscovered later. But you've made some comments in other interviews that I think people at the time were maybe saying some things, and then you've also talked about there may have been things beyond the research you were doing that enticed National Geographic to come follow you, you feel, specifically? They saw a potential cover girl in you? Well, let's say that I was fortunately born not particularly ugly. <laughs> and they like your legs, <laughs> you yeah. said. I don't know if it was they, but... But the general public yeah. talked about my legs. And funnily enough, my uncle, who was a surgeon, all through my childhood, he talked to my mother. He said, she's got the most amazing legs. So I was kind of used to people saying and it didn't mean a thing to me. Right. You know, I wasn't into that. But clearly it was beneficial. So, I mean, when, when people said, oh, well, you know, it's nothing to do with 
what she's seen or her scientific aspirations. It's just because of her legs. It just made me smile in a way because obviously it's nothing to do with no, my legs. No, and They're just and lucky I had legs that people liked. Right. It was a perk. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it was a perk. Yeah. It's yeah. like with, with Gloria Steinem we had on this podcast. And I think in some ways it just gets more people to pay attention yeah. to the good work you're already That's doing. That's fine. Let it be. Right. So as a result of the National Geographic coverage, I imagine you became a much more recognized yeah. figure. When did you first realize that? When would you go back from Gombe and be in sort of Western situations? And how did this sort of fame first manifest itself? Well, because the Geographic was funding me, I had to go to Washington to give a lecture mm -hmm. because that was part of the deal. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely terrified. I, I've been shy as a child. I could never speak at school. And now I had to give this lecture. The first lecture I ever gave was in Constitution Hall, <laughs> DAC, with what, 5,000 people? Oh my gosh. And I thought, well, I can't do it. And for the first, I know it felt like five minutes, probably one minute or half a minute, I know, but I couldn't breathe. Mm -hmm. And then I found I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first moment I realized, you know, that we're born with certain gifts. And one of my gifts is being able to be out in nature, to be patient. Another one is communication. Mm -hmm. And that was when I discovered, you know, I can talk to 5,000 people and then I can write books. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, particularly with smartphones, with cameras on them and everything, I, I know this is exacerbated, but I imagine that it's been probably for the last 50 plus years that you've, you know, probably not really been able to just go out to dinner or do things that most people do. That part of things, obviously, it's in some ways a got to feel nice to know that your work has reached this many people. But on the other hand, it must be a pain in the neck. Oh, you know, when it first began to happen, yeah. when people came up to me and said they knew who I was and they admired my work, it just felt awful, just felt terrible. I mean, I'm just me. Mm -hmm. And just because I'm in a geographic article doesn't mean that I'm this special person that they seem to think I am. There's this kind of... And it took me a while to realize, okay, well, this has happened. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. I hid away from it. Mm -hmm. But, okay, it's happened. It must be for a reason. Mm -hmm. And by this time, it was becoming clear that chimps were in danger, that forests were disappearing, and that, okay, this, what do you want to call it, notoriety, whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it, mm -hmm. I must use it. It's there for a reason. This has happened for a reason. So that turning point, I know, and we, we can come to this in a moment, but it was sort of 1986, right? There yeah, was 1986. And, and for reasons, well, but before that happened, you were still doing years and years more of going back and forth to Gombe. Yeah. And also one of the back and forths was to go to Cambridge. You were only the eighth person to get a PhD there without having first had a BA or a, a BSc, was that period, you know, the time that you were at Cambridge, a time that you look back at 
fondly or I know that in some ways I think you've said it equipped you with the tools you needed in order to be taken seriously as a you know research academic yeah. but did you enjoy being there not really yeah. I kind of was separated from most other people there <laughs> in fact most people don't know this but I had a tutor and she said okay Jane I know you don't want to live with all these other students so she said, I'll help you. We can say that because you've been so much on your own out in the world that you, you, you've got a psychological problem with being with people. <laughs> so I was able to live away from people out on a farm in the country, which is magic. But Probably better, you know, yeah. Oh, much, much, yeah. much, much better. I didn't enjoy Cambridge. I mean, when I got there and was told I shouldn't have given the chimps names, they should have had numbers that was scientific, and I it, couldn't talk about them having personalities, minds, or emotions, because those were unique to us. And thank God I'd have this teacher as a child, my dog, Rusty, who taught me that, of course animals have personalities, minds, and feelings. These guys didn't even want you, the kind of snooty academics did not even want you to ascribe genders to some no, of these animals, it, right? it. So my first article, a scientific article I ever wrote was for Nature. Yeah. And every time I wrote he or she, they put it. When I put who, they put which. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking, well, for pity's sake, yeah. come on, a chimp's gender is very, very obvious. Apparent, yeah. <laughs> I always remember my grandmother who was quite prudish, you know, Victorian right, era. Right, right. And she was looking at one of Hugo's early films and there's this group of males walking away from the camera. And uh, she said, oh, what's that behind him? <laughs> oh, oh, I see. And she walked out because <laughs> they have huge balls. Yeah. <laughs> what's wrong with saying he and she? That's ridiculous. And you know, you read today, if you look in articles in the newspaper, mm -hmm. you'll very often find an article which starts off it and then ends up with he and she. People are still uneasy at talking about an animal as he or she Ridiculous. or who. It's awful. So coming back to 1986, that was the same year that you published your scientific study, The Chimpanzees of Gombe, and it was the year you completed your PhD at Cambridge. So now at 52 at that point, right, you decided to shift the focus away from research and towards activism. What was the thought process behind okay, that? Okay, it was very simple. Yeah. It was because of publishing that book, the then director of the Chicago Academy of Science said, Jane, let's have a conference and let's bring together the people who are studying chimps in different parts of Africa. And there were about six study sites so that we can you know, compare, do they behave the same everywhere? Do they behave differently? In fact, he said, oh, let's have gorillas and early man. I said, no, no, let's just have chimps. So mm -hmm. he agreed. Mm -hmm. And we had one session at that conference on conditions in some captive situations like medical research labs. We had one session on conservation. And those two sessions showing that the way chimps were treated in captivity was horrendous, that in Africa, chimpanzee numbers were decreasing, forests were being destroyed, and the beginning of the bushmeat trade. So I went to that conference as a scientist. I had my PhD, had built up a research station, 
it was a better life than I'd even dreamed of. Mm -hmm. And I planned, I suppose, to carry on forever. And I left as an activist. And it wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't sit and debate and say, well, should I carry on with my scientific work or should I try and help conservation? It just it was like that. It happened. I knew I had to. I didn't know what to do. Well, because partly it was, you know, if you go back to Gombe, even Gombe was being affected by the deforestation and yes. all of that, right? Yes. So you realized that in order to protect the cause of chimps, you had to think kind of broader, right? More broadly. Yes. Well, when I flew over, when I, you know, when I thought, what can I do to help? I went to Africa mm -hmm. to learn more about the situation of the chimps. But at the same time, I learned about the horrible condition of so many people living mm -hmm. in and around chimp habitat. Mm -hmm. You know, the crippling poverty and the hunger and the lack of education and health. And then flying over Gombe and seeing that what had been part of the equatorial forest belt was a little isolated island of forest surrounded by bare hills, more people than the land could support, too poor to buy money for food from elsewhere. And that's when it hit me. If we don't do something to improve their lives, we can't even try to save the chimps. And so that began the Jane Goodall Institute's program, Takari, Take Care, mm -hmm. to improve the lives of the people in a very holistic way. So successful that what began in 12 villages is now in 72. The Amazing. people have become our partners in conservation, and we've got the same sort of program in six other African countries. That's incredible. Within five years, you started something called Roots and Shoots. What yeah. was that? Or Roots what is that? Roots and Shoots, because getting money to, to work with the villagers to improve their lives and all that kind of thing costs money. And I was having to travel around the world trying to raise awareness and money, meeting so many young people who seemed to have lost hope, who were apathetic, angry, depressed. And if our young people lose hope, we may as well all give up. Well, you've said that, quote, my job seems to have increasingly become giving people hope so that instead of doing nothing and sinking into depression, they take action, close quote. That's got to feel like a bit of a burden though, right? You're the person that's got to keep hope alive? Well, and this is why, aged 84, <laughs> I'm still traveling 300 days a year around the world. Because, why do I do it? Yeah. I only do it because it's making a difference. Mm -hmm. Because the impact, I mean, it, it might sound, you know, boastful, but people come up to me and say, you've given me hope, you've mm -hmm. given me new inspiration. Now I'm going to do my bit. Mm -hmm. And the main message of Roots and Toots is every single one of us makes an impact every single day and we have a choice as to what kind of impact we're going to make what do we buy where does it come from did it involve child slave labor did it involve cruelty to animals like factory farms is that why it's cheap and if we think about the consequences of our small choices and how that will affect future generations then you find that cumulative action around the world and we're now in nearly a hundred countries it's amazing it's actually it's not can change the world it is changing mm -hmm. the world yeah i think few individuals have spearheaded so many things that have 
had a widespread impact in the way that your efforts have. What I want to ask you, though, because that's beyond dispute that your work has has had important and lasting impact on so many others around the world. But I wonder for you, there's personal sacrifices that come as a result of this. Not only the fact that you, for all but maybe a total of two months of the year, you're on the go, but also, you know, going back to Gombe, you know, the documentary Jane sort of shows that you had to kind of decide between your first marriage to Hugo, who was filming your work, and the work in Gombe. You have said that to some extent it put a strain on the early relationship with the son that you had with Hugo. You did remarry, and I know that was tragically a, a very short marriage mm-hmm. because he, he died very young and suddenly. But do you ever wonder, you know, on a personal level, uh, what has been the toll of all of this work? It's it's really hard to say because, you know, you're given certain gifts, I think, when you're born and you can choose to work on them and improve them or not bother. Mm-hmm. And I was given one gift of a very healthy body. I mean, I'm, you know, strong, mm-hmm. tough. And the other was communication. And that's writing and speaking. And I think when you realize the state the world's in today, I mean, we know what's happening to nature. We know we're in the middle of this sixth great extinction. We know that in some cases we're using up the natural resources of the planet faster than the planet can restore them. Mm And because people listen when I talk, because they say, now I'm going to do my bit, they say, well, I had given up, but now you've inspired me that I've got to go back and fight again. So, okay, does that balance up with the fact that I can't live the beautiful life I might once have lived at Gombe, which I couldn't live now? because I know I'm meant to be doing what I'm doing. Uh-huh. And it sounds kind of a bit mushy to say a mission, but I feel I have a mission. It's absolutely not mushy. I think it. we're lucky to have you doing what you do. I just, you know, I think a lot of most people are maybe a little bit more selfish about things, you know, and that's what's amazing is your capacity to be as as selfless as you've been. But I want to ask you more about communication because it seems like the advent of the 20th century that was that enabled mass communication in a way that did not exist before was film and among other you know there have been a number of things that came along in the 20th century but certainly one of them so just a first sort of trivial question but do you watch movies i I don't really have time to watch movies i didn't think so yeah no I don't. I try to keep abreast of the news yes. and separate it from fake news. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about nature docs? I watch them. I yeah. that because when I when I am at home in England, you know, the house I grew up in where mm-hmm. my sister is in the evening, I, I try to stop email and come down at about eight o'clock and mm-hmm. have supper and a whiskey yeah. and and <laughs> <laughs> then watching a nature film, it's it's peaceful, mm-hmm. but it also there's still so much we have to learn. Right. It's magic, really. Well, the Jane Goodall of nature documentaries, I think people might say, is is David Attenborough, just somebody who's really been raising awareness through nature docs. Yes, he has. I understand that he 
was ready to quit doing that until he had the pleasure of speaking with one Jane Goodall. What was that about? Well, I don't know if he was ready to quit it, but he was very, very depressed and just feeling it wasn't worth carrying on. I'm not sure he would ever admit this, but... How long ago we, was this? Oh, oh, a long time. I, I, We were on a plane together, and I was very upset that he was so depressed, and so I did my spiel on him, you know, <laughs> and, and basically said, David, you have inspired so many people to care for nature. So whether or not that had any effect on him, but he certainly got over that period of depression. Well, the cool news is that two of the nominees at this year's Emmys are Jane and Blue Planet 2. That is David Adver, so maybe you'll see each (laughs) other there. But people have been making films about you since 1965. That's when that first... National Geographic Society Project, Miss Goodall and the Wild Chimpanzees, was made with narration by Orson Welles. I understand you did not approve of that. No, and and in fact, the narration was so bad (laughs) that they had to get him to... We had to make changes in it. They said the film is, uh, whatever you call it, when it's put to bed, you know. Oh, yeah. You can't uh, change that. In the can, yeah. It's something like that. But they could change... And I think they thought... They were shocked at this young woman who they had supported and who didn't yet have a PhD (laughs) could stand up to them. But I had a wonderful little tiny family lawyer in England and he stood up to them with me. Threatened to sue them. No, no, not to sue them, (laughs) but to to get Orson Welles to re-narrate. And by that time, he'd been skiing in Switzerland. He'd broken a leg. He was in a Swiss hospital. So they had to send the whole team out for him to re-record it. (laughs) But at least they fixed some of the narration. Among the dozens of other (laughs) projects about you that have been released as films, there was in 2010 a film that went to Cannes called Jane's Journey, which is actually what brought about, no reason for you to remember this, but I first interviewed you in 2011, and it was in conjunction with that. Then in 2012, Disney Nature put out Chimpanzee, and this year I believe there was something at Cannes, a series of virtual reality films that you yes. narrated yes. the intros for. Yes. These yes. are called The Wild Immersion. It sounds right. very interesting. Right. Uh, but the big thing that everybody's talking about for the last year is again from National Geographic, and that is the documentary called Jane from the director Brett Morgan, who's been Oscar nominated and over the years made a lot of terrific docs. I guess the thing that brought this about, though, was that National Geographic unearthed all of this footage from your first days in Gombe. It had been, where had it been? It had been in some archival store somewhere, and somebody was doing an inventory and discovered it. So you thought it was gone? Well, didn't even think about it. Yeah, You know, so... The geographic approach to Jane Goodall Institute, and I was asked if I was interested in a retrospective. And I said, oh, there have been so many films. Come on, we can't do another one. Anyway, I'm busy. Right. So they said, it will only mean three hours interview for you. The rest is you don't have to be involved. So I thought, well, they want it, so we'll, we'll go ahead and do it. Three-hour interview, well, it was three days, but... <laughs> well, and that, the fact that there was any interview, though, you had to first sort of vet Brett, right? He had to kind of win your trust. No, 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 no? I didn't meet Brett until the film was done. So who interviewed you? Oh, Brett did, but 
Okay, so all the film was edited except my interviews. I got it. Which were then put in. But he'd already worked for three years, I think. I know. So then I, uh, my three-hour interview was going to be in Dora's Salaam. Right. And I got out there and there were about 40 crew. There was huge pieces of equipment like a machine that would turn daylight into night and night into day. Mm-hmm. They had rented plants that they sell on the side of the road, about 60 of them, to make it look like around Gombe. I mean, and I looked at this setup and I thought, three hours, come on. This Not going to happen. Gonna... So it was three days. <laughs> and what was that like for you to, I mean, I assume at that point they had shown you some yes, of the footage. Yes, at that time I'd seen the footage. What it was, was it basically like? the finished film. So for you, though, I mean, it's been a half century plus since that footage was captured. You're now seeing in living color, in beautiful living color, your footage of footage of you that was taken by your ex and late husband of one of the most formative periods in your life. What was it like for you to, to sit and watch your life flash before your eyes like that? It's the only documentary that's been made, and many have, that actually took me right, right back. I... I was in that 26-year-old skin, mm-hmm. and I think it's, it's, it's partly because, you know, it's my own narration mm-hmm. taken from the narration I did of one of my books. Mm-hmm. So it's my voice talking about what I felt, and the way that Brett and his team, you know, the way they edited it, it's... It's very special. Uh-huh. Bernie Krauss spent about three months in Gombe recording the bird and insect sounds, uh-huh. and those are used. Because in, the original in, footage had no sound. No, it had no sound. And I imagine they probably needed your help to figure out for some of the chimp storylines which chimp well, is they which. Didn't ask me. No, no. But they got it right. They got it right. <laughs> Were any parts particularly? difficult to watch i mean i the polio epidemic this is what took down flow that was was the worst thing to know flow was fine but it was mr mcgregor Ah. and that was the worst one we had to shoot him because he lost both legs and one arm what about the stuff of seeing you with hugo with grub at that point in your life, what was that like? Well, I, I'd forgotten what a gorgeous baby grub yeah, was. Yeah. I loved watching that. Yeah. And it was it was lovely to see how we were back then. And it was, you know, it was sad the way it worked out. But I guess it was just one of those things. It just, it was perfect when it happened. Mm-hmm. And then things went wrong. With the uh, marriage, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So... I hope we can close with just a few big picture questions. Just I wonder what your take is on some things. Do you welcome Hollywood celebrities getting involved with efforts like yours, or do they get in the way? Initially, I'm not sure that it was very genuine, but I think the the Hollywood celebrities now, like Leonardo DiCaprio mm-hmm. and various others, yeah. I think they're, they're certainly helping mm-hmm. because... We need these issues to be brought out to the general public. Mm-hmm. And I've got a certain general public, but some of these big stars have a much broader reach. And, you know, we need to, we need to get the sports stars involved as well so we get further and further and yeah. further out. 
I believe Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to make a live action film about your life. Is that yes, true? Is. I, yes, he is. So that'll be a, another way to get, you know, yes. raise awareness. And I know that another person who is a great admirer of yours happened to be sitting across the aisle from me at the Hollywood Bowl LA premiere of Jane, the documentary. That was Angelina Jolie, who was there oh, with yes. her entire troop of yeah. children. All so she's children. A, <laughs> yes. a big family. But she was in the one you mentioned before, Jane's Journey. That's right. She was interviewed for that. That's right. That movie. Michael Jackson is someone who I understand you got to know a little bit, and that apparently he was inspired to write the song "Heal the World" by you. And, and you know, he, yes. And we we talked about it, and I spent a whole day on Neverland before yes. the little boy mess. Yes. And, yes. And I said, Michael, you know, if you do a song, it will make so much difference. So he said, give me tapes. I want to be angry. I want to cry. So we did that. And he wrote he wrote that Heal the World mm-hmm. for animals. But then his people persuaded him, no, no, Michael, you must do this for children. So the original so liner note, though, the said... The original one, yeah. Inspiration Dr. Jane Goodall. Yeah. So I went to his lawyer yeah. in L.A., mm-hmm. After Michael died, and I said, you know, Michael wanted some money from this to come to for, for us, for the animals. Mm-hmm. And Sandy Field said, yes, I know, but unfortunately it's not in writing. How did you feel about the fact that Michael kept chimpanzees at Neverland? I well, think that's he... why I went to see him, to tell him it was bad. That was Bubbles, I think, the Bubbles. there. Bubbles, by the way, is living a wonderful life in retirement. He's a very beautiful chimp. Where is he these I've days? I've met him. And Bubbles has a great skill. He takes a little piece of paper, bends it in half, makes a hole, and then makes a mask. So I have a mask made by Bubbles. From Bubbles. And, what, and you met Coco once, right? The gorilla, twice, I think. Twice? Yeah. A lot of people maybe mistakenly really associate you with Coco, but it wasn't, you didn't well, have no, a... they think, no, they mistake me with gorillas in the mist because of Sigourney Weaver. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I'm an eight-person. Right. Well, in now fact, you're going to get your I own had, movie, so yeah, then you'll... Well, I had a flight attendant, right. and she was very polite on the flight. Right. As I left, she said... It's been such an honor to have you on the flight, Miss Fossey. Oh, my so I God. smiled at her and I thought, you know, she's going to say, guess who I had on my flight? And they're going to say, but she's dangerous. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you, just for the record, though, you actually knew Diane knew Fossey Diane, quite well, yeah. right? Yes. I think you'd said that she was a little bit more, would take risks more than you would out in the wild, well, right? she, you know, I begged and begged her. I said, Diane, work with the local people. No, I can't because if they get to know the gorillas, the poaching will be worse. And I said, but with us, the chimps know the difference between people who work with them and people who don't. And you're always saying, why do people think chimps are more intelligent? So your gorillas will absolutely know their own staff. I think the thing that you also said at one point that she may have been a little envious of both you and Barut because you both because got... Because had children and husbands. And husbands. husbands, yeah. She really, that was a big thing for her to, she never... She was a very tortured woman. Yeah. Very sad. In 2015, near the end of the Obama administration, the U.S. finally classified chimpanzees as a fully endangered species as opposed to remaining split status, which allowed them to yeah. be experimented on, I guess. Yeah. That's something you had 
long called for. I don't think you were sure you'd ever see. Now, in contrast, we have the Trump administration drastically cutting funding to USAID, which supports the Jane Goodall Institute, among other things. What's your take on the direction in which America's leadership is heading on these issues under our current administration? Well, I think you can imagine how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. And obviously, every time one of these things goes up, a bill is, is put into the House and Congress, we're going to do our best to try and prevent it being passed. I mean, that's all we can do. But, at this, you know, that's why I work so hard with the young people. Mm -hmm. So even if you can't fight a current administration, you can work to get young people coming up mm -hmm. who have a different set of values and who understand that it's not, it literally is not possible to have unlimited economic development on a planet with finite natural resources. And the sooner we realize we depend on Mother Nature... And we go on destroying Mother Nature at our own peril. And are we not any longer worrying about future generations? Mm -hmm. Are we only worrying about right here and now? How sad if that's true. Many of us in America are confounded by and constantly trying to figure out President Trump. You have reached the conclusion that I think was very fascinating, and it got a little bit of pickup. You believe that he reminds you of a chimpanzee, right? I didn't say that. <laughs> that say this that. is the fallacy. What I said was <laughs> that when male chimpanzees are competing for dominance, yes. many of their behaviors remind me of certain politicians when they are also competing for dominance. And probably that was the Atlantic Monthly, I remember. Yes. And I think Donald Trump's name did come up at that point. <laughs> because but never why? compared him with a chimp. It would be kind of insulting. Well, that's not nothing that he hasn't ever done either. Anyway. Uh, no, I mean, it would be insulting to the... Oh, to the... couldn't <laughs> get this right. Yeah, this is... <laughs> How has climate change already affected chimps? Well, what it, what it does, it's made... You know, we used to have very clear rainy season. We had the short rains and the long rains and the dry season. Now... No short and long rains. It's kind of a, a muddle. And because of this, it means that the the fruit trees are ripening at different times. And in certain parts of Africa anyway, the droughts are getting worse and worse and worse. It depends which part of Africa. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anybody's worked out exactly how climate change is affecting Gombe, mm -hmm. but certainly the weather pattern is completely different. How often do you get back to Gombe? Twice a year. And what do Only you, brief. What do you do when you're there? Well, I try and get out in the field for at least one day in the forest by myself, but I almost have to avoid the chimps because there's tourists all the time. Really? So I just want to be out in nature mm -hmm. and try and remember how it was. What is the most normal for an 84-year-old thing that you do? We know that you do all these extraordinary things that if we said to another 84-year-old person, they wouldn't wrap their, you know, go go spend a day or two in Gombe, they wouldn't know what to do. Do you play like Mahjong or anything like that or Canast? No. <laughs> well, when I'm at home in England, I take the dog for a walk. Okay. Um, 
What's the normal thing? I don't know what 84-year-old people do. That's right. I uh, sleep. (laughs) I I eat enough to keep alive. What else do you want me to say? That's uh, that's good. And I have fun. And I have a little tot of whiskey. That's the secret. I have one after this. Okay. Well, the last... It's a big secret. (laughs) Uh, Success. What type of whiskey? Doesn't really matter. Doesn't matter. Not not the really expensive single malt because they're the almost medicinal. Right, right, right. There's lovely smooth ones. Got you. Well, the last question I just want to ask is: Can you tell me and our listeners what specifically we can do to be most helpful to you in your efforts moving forward? Just so that people leave this with an assignment. What would that be? Okay. Well, it's kind of a. A double one. One is to help, obviously, the Jane Goodall Institute to find out about us, and that includes roots and shoots. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, growing roots and shoots, and every young person can become involved. It's kindergarten through university. And it's not that these young people can change the world, they are, mm-hmm. because they choose to do three projects one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. So that's Something, But the other thing, much more general, is every single day that you live, Mm -hmm. you make some impact on this planet. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the consequences of the small choices you make, what do you buy, what do you eat, what do you wear, where did it come from, how was it made, is it cheap because of child slave labor or these terrible factory farms? And if you think about those consequences and make ethical choices... It may seem nothing, small, but think of a thousand, a million, and then a billion people all around the world making ethical choices. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this, and thank you for everything that you do. It's an honor to have you on here. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, too, for inviting me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.